I think COVID has like it has accelerated digital transformation because I think it made people really feel the vulnerability of business continuity. So if everybody in your control room gets COVID, your asset shuts down and that's it, right? Because nobody outside of that small pool of of people is trained to operate it. And if your asset shuts down, there goes, you know, potentially nine figures for a month. Welcome to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the before and after some of the world's most effective transformation processes. I'm your host, Paul French. On our show, we've explored all kinds of different transformations within industries like healthcare and distribution in relation to topics like employee retention and customer experience. And significantly, we're exploring these trends and ideas at a time when the whole world seems to be transforming. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Vicky Knott, co-founder and CEO of Crux OCM. Crux OCM utilizes AI and real-time optimization to enable semi-autonomous operation of oil pipelines, reducing the risk of operations and increasing volumetric throughput. As we look into a world where travel returns and oil demand increases, how can that be balanced against global desires to increase sustainability and renewable energy? Vicki, welcome to Transform It Forward. Yeah, thanks for having me. You guys are in a really interesting place as you're trying to be a disruptor in an industry that is kind of hanging on to the past a little bit. It's starting to move a little bit forward, but definitely hung on a lot longer than others. So you're the founder of the company. I absolutely love how you use social and video and, and try to really make an, an authentic story for what you guys are doing. Tell me a little bit about you know, how you identified the problem you wanted to start with. So my background is chemical engineering and got my, I guess, my first real job as a, as a big kid in uh, oil and gas and worked for TC Energy. So a lot of folks have heard of the Keystone Pipeline and, and you know, the good old KXL cancellation here these days. I commissioned control systems in the field. I trained as a control room operator. I worked with FIMSA's control room management, management of change, and I also worked closely with the commercial group. So through that experience, training in the control room for me was really, really important because if I was supposed to be an engineer on an asset, how can I engineer effective solutions if I don't understand how it actually fundamentally works? You know, not just like hydraulics on a book, but how it actually works if you touch it. So through that experience, really started to understand the workload and the effort from a control room operator's perspective, as well as the criticality of that control room operator role. Whether or not industry likes it, that is your frontline to profits, losses, safety, and environmental. So I felt strongly that that role was, was undervalued and not being serviced to give the tools that they really need. So I met my co-founder, Roger Shirt. He has a PhD in uh, process control, and he'd been working in the pipeline industry consulting for about 18 years. So his control algorithms are in, I think, close to 2,000 oil pump station sites across North America. So he really had the fundamentals of how we could start fully automating control room operators, procedures, checklists, and rules of thumb. That's fantastic. And it, and it articulates a handful of things that kind of come to mind about the complexity of the current situation, the fact that there's tons of heterogeneity in that business, where people have different ways and different processes, and, and a lot of it still you know, old school SCADA systems that don't exactly lend themselves to, hey, I got a great idea, let's do a small upgrade. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the SCADA is an interesting beast all on its own. I'm looking for the day when it's uh, not around. It seems when you look at something like this and, and you're bringing, you know, a fairly revolutionary approach. I had a little time in the oil and gas business too. And people who are moving gas and oil still send the spreadsheets back and forth between you know, schedulers in a lot of cases. I mean, how do you attack the change management side of this as much as you attack the technology side of it? I think 
it's been a huge function of timing, to be perfectly honest. And like, we've been around now for about three and a half years. And three and a half years ago, we were too early. You know, having these discussions, their curiosity was peaked, but they weren't like genuinely interested. So the cultural aspect is definitely timing for folks to become interested in this. With respect to the hands-on change management aspect of it, like inside of a control room, control rooms are extremely well-regulated in a very good way. And there is a, a very defined process to be bringing in a technology like this that involves, you know, point-to-point checks on the control system, you know, control room operator training for the new functionality and updating of, of any documentation that's required. So given that we're familiar with it, that side of the tactical change management side, we're, we're very comfortable with. The culture side, I think, has been a function of timing. And definitely, like, COVID has accelerated for us. We have had customers who were kind of like, yeah, this looks cool. We'd love to give it a try to being like, okay, can we put it everywhere? (laughs) Interesting. Why do you think that was? I think COVID has, like it has accelerated digital transformation because I think it made people really feel the vulnerability of business continuity. So if everybody in your control room gets COVID, your asset shuts down and that's it, right? Because nobody outside of that small pool of of people is trained to operate it. And if your asset shuts down, there goes, you know, potentially nine figures for a month. Yeah, pretty soon you're talking about real money, right? Real money. Within like an hour, you're talking real money. You know, going back to the change management, less the, like, how do we put the systems in and make them talk and, and, and those obviously important things. But I would imagine that when you think about the people turning the dials and working on those things, that's not exactly a place where you expect to find cutting edge technology, right? Is it the case where people are dying to adopt it from a user perspective? Or is there a little bit of pushback on, hey, listen, I know how to do this. And, you know, why do we need to change this side of things? So every single end user I've met with had said, this is awesome, when can I get it? (laughs) So I think that that's a testament to just how cumbersome it is to actually operate these assets and and how it's not widely known or widely understood what those folks that are sitting there pushing pushing these buttons are actually doing and, and how difficult it is. So when you think about, you know, heavily regulated, heavily environmental impact, heavy economic impact, potentially, how do you define the risk profile and help somebody understand the end benefits of of making this, what is probably significant transformation in the business is worth it? For us, the way that we have the discussion is we try to find the control robbers if we can, or if, if our way into those discussions with folks is not through the control room operators, we make sure to get them in the room as, as quickly as we can. So when building the business case, so the way that we actually do it is we run with our first early customers because we are a startup. We have done proof of concepts with them where we build a, a dynamic digital twin of a part of their asset. And we run scenarios that they predefine. And then we compare their historical data to our output and build the business case for them in a final report that's turned over that can be attached to their internal business case memo, uh, which outlines the ROI. So the ROI is multi-pronged for sure. Our early customers are anticipating, you know, in the hundreds of millions of additional revenue by operating these assets more efficiently. So something that a lot of folks don't realize is that even if these assets are meeting 100% of their contracted rates, that contracted value may only be 85 to 90% of the actual capacity or the utilization of the asset. So the part that we're capturing is that little bit that everyone's kind of forgotten about. But as you said, because this industry is so big, right, and the dollar values are so big, like 1% has, has very serious meaning in this industry. So by doing the POC that way with regards to safety and environmental, by presenting them with this very clear business case and showing like, yes, we reduced the control room operator interactions, 
which is a function of safety because the less a person touches it, the less likely they are to mess it up. You know, we're, we're able to make that case to move into their test environment in their SCADA systems. Is a digital twin function, I mean, it's, it's actually it's been around for a while in, in a variety of different production environments, but is it something that is you're seeing is something that people are comfortable with in oil and gas? Yeah, like I actually only started using the term digital twin recently because people seem to understand what it is, but like we just call them dynamic simulators. Like I learned how to build stuff on dynamic simulators when I was in university. That's super normal in this industry. Where does the problem stop? Right? Is it enough to say if we could just operate, you know, gain that one percent efficiency here, given what's happening in the rest of the world in terms of seeking renewables, and you know, who knows what's happening in, with with government and regulation and things like that? Is that going to be enough, or is it? Where does it go from from that particular span in your mind? Yeah. So where we are and what we're trying to do, like we're really working and really adamant to to bring a heavy industry forward as much as we can. In terms of our visions for the company, you know, we operate our lives from our phones and phones are, are complex, yet we can push one button on them and, and do just about anything. So, you know, I, I'm really adamant that we get to that point with heavy industry. From a energy transition and a renewable standpoint, you know, wind farms have control rooms, solar plants have control rooms, right? Like you need to get the most out of all of these assets because if you're not, uh, utilization and, and efficiency is green, right? So you need to be maximizing all of these assets. Otherwise, what are you actually achieving? Spilling crude's less of a problem from your your wind farm, but you still have safety concerns. And, and certainly the efficiency side of things is where, where all the returns going to be in a place where you have a natural decay too, right? Absolutely. And like the human factors thing is such a big thing as well. Like, you know, you may have someone who's like a 30 year experienced, amazing control room operator, and they can do this in their sleep. But because of that, then they become complacent, right? And so why are we leaving tasks that, you know, humans find boring and repetitive to humans? Like, you know, we can prove time and time again that we're not good at them. Well, I love the reference that you made in something that you said you, you were talking about, it. you know, the robotic process automation side of things is, is a fairly common thing. And certainly on the industrial side, it's a They've been trying to do it in SCADA for 100 years, it seems like. But the idea of reimagining the entire value chain in oil and gas all the way down to the end, is that how people are, are actually looking at it? Or really is it a 1% yield across individual steps? Yeah, so I, so I did recently do a blog post on this because nobody is thinking across the entire value chain like traders do. But in my discussion with traders, is they've never seen a control room. They don't know how it actually works, like how these assets actually come up and down. But how it definitely works is you have loads of initiatives on individual pieces of equipment. So like, you know, you can just Google artificial lift technologies and every technology is claiming that additional 1% efficiency out of your well. But if you're not able to realize that 1% throughout the whole value chain, then does it matter, right? So that's where I think the interconnectedness of the value chain is really important. It's a fascinating side of things, right? Because I would imagine at some point in time, you know, there's a plant operator who has the discretion to say, I'm going to make some improvements that are going to improve or reduce the risk or the efficiency or whatever the case may be. But ultimately, when you're talking about some, you know, global conglomerate that's responsible for EMP or whatever the case may be, it has to be that sort of decision. I mean, it's a, it's a holistic business change. Absolutely. And so for what we're doing, right, it's like, and we, we say this to our customers and our potential customers, like, if you're an integrated oil company, like the best bang for your buck from working for us is going to be to get us in your field and on your gathering system and on your transmission line and in your refineries, right? Like, and your gas plants, like you want this everywhere. Yeah. But before you know it, you're running the whole thing from your iPhone, just like we all want to do anyway, right? <gasps> That's the plan. <laughs> One can dream, right? That is the plan. So what are you seeing your customers do in, in terms of the blend of renewables, especially in the face of rising demand here when hopefully we all get a vaccine here shortly? 
So our current customers are, are definitely working hard to increase the utilization of their assets. There's investment into different kinds of, of renewables, um, natural gas also being a focus, um, given it's a more favorable uh, view. One of our customers is a super major, and they are investing heavily in, of course, wind and solar, which is great to see. So it is definitely happening. You know, I haven't been in the industry forever, but I've been in the industry for a good 10 years. And like, I think something that, you know, this is like a big thing on the media, like the renewable energy transition, but like, this isn't actually that new. Like we've been on the way for a while and, and you know, the renewed excitement is fantastic and it needs to keep happening. This isn't going to happen in a year, right? And it's not going to happen in five years. I don't know if it's going to be a hundred, I don't know if it's going to be 50, but I, I think the, the realisticness is, re realistic um, mentality is required. And I think also recognizing all of the amazing companies that are out there that are pioneering renewable energy and that have been doing it for 10 years, right? Yeah, that's a 20-year overnight success they all talk about. Yeah, absolutely. It could be 50 or 100. 100. That's right. I look at from from not only, I mean, there, there's obviously a huge political side of things. There's a huge regulatory side. There's a huge environmental concern side, but there's the natural consumer demand side, right? It was, you know, 100 years ago, why would you get into a car that was exploding in front of you? Well, now we think, don't think twice. And, and before you know it, we'll have you know, all the power you can possibly consume at your house and you would never think about internal combustion. So it, it just is a matter of time, probably. Yeah, I, I think it's a matter of time and energy poverty is a thing. It's not talked about enough, I don't think. But like, you know, developing nations, like they, they need energy and oil and coal and natural gas are significantly cheaper. And so as energy demand increases, you know, so does renewables. But as global energy demand is increasing, that is going to prolong the transition timeline, right? And I think that that's kind of forgotten as well. If you think about, because I, I love the idea of looking at it truly from a value chain perspective, where is the best benefit for an integrated to start the process of digital transformation? Clearly, yours has got a great payback and a, and a, and a clear ROI. But is it the highest bang for the buck for a global super major? Hmm. That is a good question. I am so hyper-focused on my world of where we provide value on the operations side that um, I'm not 100% sure. Like, I would love to think that we are the absolute biggest bang for the buck. <laughs> not going to lie. <laughs> we're going to go with that for, this, um, for, the, for these purposes. We're going to go with that, you know. <laughs> Vicky mentioned that instead of focusing solely on renewables, companies need to think about how to utilize their existing assets better. Why is this so important to ROI and efficiency? Is this still sustainable? As you look at it over the course of the next 10 years, what, what are the big trends that are going to happen that are going to either play into disruption or be disrupted with regards to your potential customer targets? Yeah, with regards to our customer targets, I think the biggest thing that's, that's going to have to happen, and whether that be with technologies like ours or other technologies, is you know, these existing assets have got to become more efficient and they have got to be utilized better. That I think is going to be the biggest trend because if you have a decreasing investment into the energy sector, the oil and gas sector specifically, those investors, those PE firms that are holding those assets, they still expect return. And since the value of those aren't, aren't growing over expansion, then there needs to be efficiency plays that increase the dividend payback, right? And the profitability of these assets. So that's where I think the biggest trend is going to be, is going to be in making the assets that folks currently have, just making them sing and not assuming that you can just build another pipeline or build another gas plant. I think it's a fabulous way to think about it. It really is. It's a private equity problem. It's the kind of private equity that, that goes in and buys software companies like you know, the, the kind of company that I work for. It's the kind of company that goes in and, and does the math to try and extract the maximum amount of value 
uh, for whoever the next potential owner will be. And in this, who knows what the, the next potential owner will be. So when you think about your business, what, what are the next kind of logical adjacencies that you think of knowing that the market's changing and knowing that people are going to start to look at this from a value chain perspective? Our goal is to, to get ourselves in as many control rooms as possible. So we, we do definitely like the integrated customers. So our first three customers are, are integrated, maybe they're not across the whole value chain, but certainly parts of it. We've also been excited to see that our customers have seen that in us and have requested us to move items up on our product roadmap that help them, you know, see, see this across their value chain a bit faster. So that's certainly where we're going, I guess, longer term out, of course, you know, if we're in one of the super majors and the super majors are investing in wind farms, like those have control rooms. So those would be the next applications that we would want to be moving towards again, with that end goal of, okay, why can't we operate? Why isn't this simple enough that we can operate it from a tablet? Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned that you guys are using uh, some level of machine learning or artificial intelligence to help guide and control and at least narrow the options for the control room operators. How much of that will continue over time when you think about the, just a massive amount of pattern recognition that exists already in these kind of things? I'm actually going to like back that one up a little because something that I think a lot of people like kind of look over with regards to these kinds of assets is, you know, machine learning is not the silver bullet for everything. Like it, it just isn't. So if you're trying to determine how to control an oil pipeline and you put a giant machine learning algorithm on it, you know, A, you're taking a lot of time and a lot of resources to get that data, scrub that data. But what you're going to get out of it at the other end is probably just a dynamic Bernoulli's equation. So we already know those a lot of this physics. And because we already know a lot of this physics, that's where we start and that's where we leverage. And if we need to augment because of mergers and acquisitions and different kinds of assets, then we'll, we'll tweak from there. You know, if someone's missing a sensor, we'll use uh, machine learning to create a soft sensor. But we definitely start from the fundamentals. And another reason why is if you think of it, like why would you also have an algorithm, machine learning, how your control room operators operate this asset? Really, all you're going to get is your average control room operator. Whereas if you start from physics, you know that you're going straight towards optimal and then you're coming back. That's a fascinating way to think about it. Can't fight physics, no matter how hard you try. Can't fight physics. I know. So my last question is always uh, a, a little bit personal. When the day's over and you've had a long day and you decide to put on a little music to relax, what do you like to listen to? Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. How can you go wrong with Taylor <laughs> Swift? I have no shame. Vicki, you're awesome. Thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much. Vicki had tons of incredible insights to share about the transformation of the energy business. But here are a couple of key takeaways. First, the oil and gas industry is very traditional. For Vicki, to start automating control operations, it was a matter of timing and familiarity. When COVID hit, oil and gas businesses were forced to think about their vulnerability to business continuity, which accelerated a necessary shift in technology adoption. Second, regardless of the industry, user experience comes down to ease of use. Like most of us, heavy industries like oil and gas, their workers use smartphones every single day. So it's vital to get these businesses to a point where features are accessible and simple to use. Third, oftentimes workers with repetitive tasks are cautious of automation frankly, due to the fear of job loss. But as Vicky asks, why are we giving unhuman tasks to humans? If we can automate repetitive tasks, we can free more time to focus on innovation and improvement. And fourth, rather than focusing solely on the transition to renewables, we need to consider how we can better utilize our existing energy assets. 
At the end of the day, investors expect ROI, and that comes from efficiency. Think about how you can extract the most value out of what you have, rather than consistently building for new materials. Thank you for listening to Transform It Forward. Transform It Forward is brought to you by Axwhite. For over 20 years, Axway Solutions have enabled companies to open everything, better harness their data and process, and use them in new ways to delight their customers. If you like this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple Podcasts.